one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Today, a vanguard of dedicated healers are rescripting our notion of what being sick means and what it means to be well. They're weaving together conventional allopathic medicine with energy healing, massage, and spiritual practices, treating the whole person, not only the ailing organ or acute disease. But to be an effective practitioner in this path requires going through your own healing process so you can have sensitive connection to the energies in play. And who's ready for that? The opportunities are huge. The challenges are real. You're just in time for the evolution. Welcome to The Evolver, where each week I talk with inspiring pioneers of the new consciousness culture. If this show speaks to you, please show your support by subscribing on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcast app of your choice. Share this episode with new friends at the Psychedelic Integration. Leave a rating on iTunes and post about it on social media. Our email address is theevolver at evolver.net. And you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Now, let's get started. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. What if it turned out that when we get sick, that it's actually spirit's way of using the body to tell us something important? What if the body wasn't just an organic machine-like device that you drive around like a Chevy, stopping by the garage for the occasional tune-up, replacing parts as they break until it inevitably ends up in the scrap heap? Suppose that, in fact, the body is a manifestation of your psyche, of consciousness, and that your health is a direct extension of your emotional and spiritual state. Well, if that were true then our idea of what a general practitioner should be doing when you visit for a checkup would be turned upside down. Rather than giving you a peripheral glance while focusing intently on your test results, the doctor would give you space to express how you feel, where you're at, what's going on in your life. In this scenario, your GP is more like a life coach, able to read you with great sensitivity and respond to your subtle needs. Catching issues early, before they develop into serious illness. At least that would be the intention. This approach would give as much attention to preventative care as it does to identifying acute symptoms. It would understand that preventative care includes attending to spiritual imbalances and helping you maintain a high level of wellness. Now, I know this all sounds pretty woo, but if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you can see how we've already touched on various parts of this puzzle from shamans Alberto Vialdo and Itzhak Biri discussing the shamanic approach to healing, to psychiatrist Julie Holland and psychologist Rachel Harris addressing how psychedelics can be used to promote mental health, to yogini Kevin Courtney making the connection between the body, health, and spiritual attainment, to herbalist Robin Rose Bennett talking about how health can be so connected to the spiritual aspect of plants, to energy healers 
Ed Edwards, and Michael Ventura exploring the healing properties of qi. With all these modalities in play, it's time for us to begin a synthesis. And that brings us to today's guest, Erica Matluck. Erica was trained in conventional medicine as a nurse practitioner and naturopathic doctor, but her interest in healing and a love of other cultures led her to also study other unconventional approaches. She became a Reiki master, a massage therapist, a yoga and meditation teacher, and to develop her skills as a clairvoyant. Erica is an example of a new kind of healthcare professional, a healer who blends Western conventional medicine with Eastern and indigenous practices that look at your health through your whole being. She addresses the physical, mental, emotional, and energetic barriers to health, combining functional lab testing and conventional diagnostics with integrative treatment plans and mind-body techniques. Currently with the Center for Integrative Therapies in New York, Erica spent seven years practicing at One Medical in San Francisco. In 2015, she served as the Interim Director of Integrative Medicine at One Medical. I should note, before we get going, that we had a technical glitch while recording this episode and had to use the backup audio captured by our video cameras. So, the sound is not great, but the information here is powerful. Erica is a clear, articulate, and knowledgeable speaker about what's happening at the forefront of our changing medical paradigm. As our sense of what it means to be human expands, the way we address illness and pursue wellness is being transformed. Join us as we take a peek at the medical future. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does, but for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals, and scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, 
cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. So I don't come to you when I have a broken arm. No. Or um, some weird growth on my body that I can't understand. No, you don't come to me for acute issues. Usually you come to me because something is chronic, something's been bugging you for a while, and you're not the, the conventional perspective is not really providing the answers or the solutions. And you have a background in conventional medicine. Right. As a nurse practitioner and as a naturopathic doctor. Okay. So, you know, like, I mean, let me put it this way. Every time I go to a doctor and I got a problem, I want that doctor to see me. Right. Or at least the test results. Right. Looking at my blood work, making sure whatever that that issue is not really an issue. Or if it is, it's going to be, you know, I'm going to get something prescribed. that's going to take care of the problem. Right. So, um, what happens when you say you're seeing somebody? What do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, I think what often happens is in the conventional medical world, we are very good at understanding and managing the things that we know. And there are things that we know and we have specialists that are incredible at diagnosing them and treating them. And then there's a percentage of people that are experiencing things in their bodies or their minds or their lives that don't really fit into anything we know. And for conventional providers, that is often not their happy place, right? So someone walks in and they know everything, the the provider knows everything there is to know about the potential diagnoses that this person could fit. They know how to read the labs. They know everything there is to know, but what this person is experiencing doesn't fit into what we know. And so oftentimes when people have chronic conditions with no identifiable diagnosis or etiology, they feel unseen by providers because they feel like they're being, the provider is trying to fit them into a diagnosis. And if they don't fit in with the diagnostic criteria, then they're often just told, you're fine. And they're not fine. They feel that something is really wrong in their bodies. And so I think when I say they feel seen, I have a greater tolerance for this, this area of health that where we just don't know. As a conventionally trained nurse practitioner, do you do a full body check the same way that I do that that I get when I go to a doctor? When it's appropriate. So I don't work in a primary care capacity. So I, people don't come to me for their annual physical. But if someone's coming to me for digestive issues, 
I will usually do an abdominal exam and listen and feel. The same kind of thing you were trained to do as a nurse practitioner. Exactly. Um, at what point do you bring other stuff into it? Yeah, so the big answer to that is it depends. So what I'm looking, the way that I'm looking at health, I'm thinking about there's a physical component, a mental component, an emotional component, and an energetic or a spiritual component. And just like you're saying to me, I'm trying to find the way in. I'm also with clients trying to find the right way in. So there are certain things. The first place to start is always, what do you want to change? And usually people's response to that is what they're experiencing physically. Sometimes there's a mental or emotional component that they're aware of. And then it's my job to figure out where do we need to start to move the needle the most on their experience? So oftentimes that's doing lab work that hasn't been done. Oftentimes that's making dietary changes or lifestyle changes that do occur on the physical plane and they fit into very normal things in the medical world. And we kind of see how far working on the physical plane can get someone. And then if, for example, maybe we see 50% improvement or 30% improvement, then I'm starting, as I'm working with someone, I'm starting to get to know them more and more things are starting to emerge. So for example, for someone who has digestive issues, maybe we start by changing their diet. Maybe we look at some stool testing and do some work with the microbiome, the bacterial balance or imbalance in the gut. And then maybe it starts to emerge that there are some issues going on that are associated with the solar plexus chakra, right? So I use the seven chakras often as a symbolic lens. I got to say that most GPs that I have gone to in my life have rarely referred to my chakras. And they generally sort of stop in terms of what they're interested in with me at the physical, right? Exactly. They're like, uh, okay, let me see what I can prescribe for you. This is going to help you digest better, maybe. Let me know how it works. I'll be back in six weeks. Right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it kind of ends there. You're opening up this whole other can of worms when you start to dive into somebody's essentially full lifestyle way of addressing their health, right? Exactly. So why is that a valuable way to think about it? from your perspective, from your experience? Mm -hmm. So from my experience, the body is an instrument and the body is constantly giving us feedback about how we're living our lives. So even if you start to look at chronic illness today, the majority of chronic illness is driven by lifestyle choices. And we're very, we tend to be very comfortable talking about diet, exercise, becoming more comfortable in the medical community, talking about things like meditation, loving kindness practices. But in my experience with having a many year background as a yogi and energy worker, what I see is there's more to it than that. What I love about the, ch the chakra system is they are symbolic. And they kind of give us these themes to look at. They also have their own developmental path throughout the lifespan. So for example, if someone's working 
on digestive issues and we, you know, make some dietary changes and, and we add some probiotics and maybe we see some, some shifts in their experience. But then, you know, even in a conventional world, a conventional medical world, you, it's, it's, there's plenty of research that links anxiety or stress with irritable bowel syndrome, right? So we're already in the mainstream starting to make these connections between mind and body. But I then take it farther and I think about, okay, well, the solar plexus chakra and in terms of the subtle body, the energetic body, this is near the digestive system. And what is this associated with? It's associated with anger, limiting belief systems, judgment. It's associated with the development of the mental body, which happens in our teen years. So it might just nudge my line of questioning with someone. Are, were, was there anything big that happened to you around that time? Can we go back and can we see if, there, if there's anything there, right? So it really, more than anything else, it opens up a line of questioning. And then they direct where we're going. So then you become a therapist. I mean... In some ways, I think all primary care providers become therapists to some degree because you're the first line of defense, really. I'm not a therapist, and therapists are experts in their own domain, but I also don't think I can address people's physical health holistically and well without being able to talk to them about their mental patterns and their emotions. But when you do that, let me just throw it out there and you can tell me I'm wrong. But Mm -hmm. when you do that, essentially looking for that traumatic thing that happened for somebody when they were young, in their teen years, are you essentially working to identify a wound that then can be treated energetically as well in other ways as well? That doesn't have to be a talk therapy, right? But it's... There's a larger thing that's going on that maybe it's not even necessary to get into the details of the of the of the trauma Mm -hmm. talk, but you could work with it in different ways. Exactly, and if it so, oh, oh, it's not always a wound or a trauma. That's the other thing. It's just me. I'm just talking about me. (laughs) (laughs) And if it is a trauma. And someone doesn't have a therapist, that's a great time to think about establishing care with someone. If it's a trauma and they already have a therapist, then great. They already have a platform to take that avenue in to the trauma. But sometimes it's simply, you know, as a teenager, I really wanted to be an artist. And my high school art teacher told me that my painting wasn't great. That's not traumatic. <laughs> I guess it all depends how we des- describe trauma. Yeah, okay. But we form this belief or, of the world, of, of what we're capable of and what's possible for us. And sometimes that leads us down a path of building a life that isn't aligned with who we truly are. And usually that's when the body starts turning the volume up. Ooh, okay, wait a second. Let me get this straight. So it's who we truly are, which is to say, let's just use woo terminology like our higher self, being out of alignment with that in how we behave, in the things that we do in our daily existence, you're saying leads to 
issues in the body that can lead to illness. Yes. I'm saying it can. Okay. doesn't have to. Exactly. Okay. But it can. Mm-hmm. But what we're seeing, and one reason why I'm so happy to have you on the show today, is that there are more and more health workers who are starting to recognize through their deep work with patients how much more is going on than mechanical, physical stuff. And there's a weaving of different modalities that seems to be happening more and more among practitioners who are themselves having their own opening experiences of a spiritual nature, however you want to define that. And they're seeing that what's been going on for them reflected in what's happening in their patients, coming to the realization that the standard allopathic medical paradigm that basically sees the body like a car until the point where it breaks down, it's running fine, leave it alone, something breaks, you find the mechanical solution to fix it. Mm -hmm. And health basically is as long as the car is running, you're healthy. Right. Right. Even if in order to keep the car running, you got to put on a truss and you've got a you know, back brace and you're popping these pills and you're you know, doing all those things to juice the car to keep it going. That's still considered on some level a kind of health because the health is determined by how your action in the world is perceived by others almost. It's like, oh, you're performing. If you can perform, you are healthy, mm-hmm. right? Right. But there's this other thing that's going on now where, as you're talking about it, health is seen in this much more, in a way that includes the emotions, that includes your sense of you know, being in flow. Mm-hmm. How did you come about that for yourself to see that as a path that you wanted to follow? Were mm-hmm. you, did you want to be a doctor when you were a kid? Uh, It's been a lifelong journey for me. So I was pre-med as an undergrad, and I was a kid who was always interested in the unseen world. I was always curious about what else there is. And as a college sophomore, I grew up in New York. Uh, Okay, cool. No one else in my family is like that. Uh, I was just always very a very curious kid. You got doctors in the family? None. No one in healthcare. And as a pre-med student and under as an undergraduate, I was studying pre-med and anthropology with a particular interest in the intersection of health and culture. At that time, it was my interest was really how do other cultures around the world heal? And this is really inspired by the loss of my mother as a young girl. My mother had lung cancer. We lost her when I was 11. And years later, I had a boyfriend whose father had a different kind of cancer, but ended up going down to a clinic in Mexico and doing this alternative treatment with macrobiotic diets and nutrient IV therapy. And he ended up going into remission and living many, many years. Now, with my medical brain today, I know that those were two very different cancers. And that probably would not have been an outcome for my mother. But it opened me up to this idea that there are a lot of different ways to approach healing. And I want to learn about all of them. So when you were a kid, 
I assume that you must have spent a lot of time in hospitals. With all of the good intentions of all the nurses and the aides in the hospital, there's this tendency that they have, inevitably, because of the way that they have to work and the, and, and the way that they're judged about their job, to see the patient as a car on an assembly line. Yes. And I didn't spend a ton of time in the hospital because it was about a year from diagnosis till death. But I spent enough time as a sensitive kid to feel that something about this environment was not right. My dad, just a couple of months ago, uh, 93 years old, had pneumonia and was in the hospital. And he's recovered, thank God, because we got him to the hospital in time and they were able to get him the antibiotics and put him in an IV drip and monitor constantly this the blood work to make sure that the infection was going down. So all those things that you want allopathic medicine to do, it did for him. And, you know, I'm incredibly grateful. But also just watching the moment-by-moment moment interactions in the hospital where the nurses would come in and the aides would come in and they're doing the test or they're doing the, you know, they're, they're putting on the the vaporizer thing on his face and then they're, you know, getting him up to eat and they're pushing him back down the line. And it's like, there was almost no real sensitivity to where he was at at that moment, what he really needed at the moment when they arrived, you know, because sometimes he wasn't hungry when they needed to feed him, or like whatever it might be. But um, the lighting was all fluorescent lights the room was essentially this unbearably uncomfortable, sterile environment that had no personality at all. It was not, it was the opposite of what you would want for a healing experience. Mm -hmm. And that was so, what became really clear to me then, you know, just in that visceral, like in the moment experience was how off base our approach to taking care of sick people actually is he could have been he could have recovered much better and faster and deeper on many levels had there been an adjustment around his an, an understanding of what it is that he was actually going through i'm just i'm just thinking that you know when you're a kid in the hospital with your mom that kind of approach can leave a deep impression absolutely and i'm not here to bash the system either i deeply understand why we are where we are. And I don't think that it, the medical system is where it is because of bad intentions. I think we're learning as we go. And we developed a system at a time when we really needed acute care. We're very, very good at acute care. And we're at a new time in human history and evolution where that's not really what we need right now. And we need care that's more centered around chronic conditions, which requires lifestyle work. As a kid, you got interested in health. You went pre-med, but you're also an anthropologist. That is a rare combination. And it was very natural to me. And I went to college in Oberlin, Ohio, where you actually don't have much diversity of culture. But I found, you know, the one... Chinese medicine doctor and did an independent study with her. And I found a Reiki master and I studied with her for two years. So I was kind of getting the most I could out of Oberlin, Ohio, while doing a pre-med and anthropology degree. Were the other med students, pre-med students interested in Reiki or? No. 
What did they think you were doing? You know, at that time in my life, I was pretty quiet about it. I wouldn't use the term embarrassed, but I would use say that I it wasn't something I was telling everyone about. I mean, my friends were out partying on Saturday nights on my senior year of college, and I was trying to go to bed early to wake up for my Reiki training on Sundays. Did you get your medical degree? What happened? Yeah, so so right after college, then I went to Asia. I spent almost two years in Asia. First, I was teaching English and just the anthropologist in me was exploring other culture. And then I traveled for six or eight months and I pieced together studying with people where I could in Asia. So you didn't actually pursue the being a doctor thing full on. You decided not to get the total. I took a break and then I went to massage school and I pursued that route of working with people for a while. Did this seem like a real medical practice to you, like massage and Reiki, like Reiki even coming from a pre-med context? Like, what's that all about? Like, how did you find yourself in that situation? What was it? Was it just curiosity or? It was curiosity and this, this deep knowing that there was more to it. What I didn't want to do was just say, If I want to work with people in their health, I'm going to become a doctor and heads down, be pre-med, graduate from college, go into into medical school. I really wanted to understand the different options in terms of helping people heal. And to this day, I stand by the fact that the philosophy underlying the practices that I use is what drove me to study them. I ultimately decided to pursue a naturopathic medical degree instead of a conventional medical degree because the philosophy really resonated. I wanted to understand science. I wanted to understand how the body works and the conventional approach to diagnostics. But I wanted more in my treatment tool bag than pharmaceuticals and surgeries. So naturopathic, the naturopathic curriculum offered that. And for somebody like me who doesn't actually know, what? how does that compare to the traditional medical degree? Like a naturopath, is that also like eight years of no sleep and, you know, kind of you know, being stuck as an intern in a hospital for, you know, doing 16-hour shifts until you like collapse? Or like, it, how does it compare? It's the the didactic part is similar. It's also, a, you know, you're pre-med as an undergrad. It's a four-year program. And the first two years, you know, you're going through all the basic sciences, very similar to a conventional medical student. The clinical piece is where it starts to differ. As naturopathic doctors, we tend to see fewer patients in a longer amount of time. So in the training, there's less volume. There's less seeing everything you could possibly see in short amount of times. There's no inpatient naturopathic care. So you're not doing overnight shifts in your training. You're doing, you know, nine to five clinical types of experiences. So you have the kind of background in massage and in energy healing. You're bringing that into the naturopathic work that you're doing. How did you bring these together for yourself? How did you integrate for yourself this approach to integrative medicine? It's really taken a long time, honestly, uh, to figure out where all these pieces fit. 
I mean, we live in a culture that is very good at compartmentalizing all areas of health, right? We compartmentalize the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, and we compartmentalize the modalities that impact those things. And so going through both my training and the first almost decade of my career, I didn't really have any models to help me figure out how to synthesize all these different perspectives. I really had to learn it through direct patient care and observing and starting to see, oh, where would this fit? How could this other piece of my knowledge base actually serve this person who's really stuck? And the two things that have really served me, one is continuing to learn. So even in the the first eight years of my career, I was working in a primary care environment at one medical group in San Francisco with mostly conventional medical doctors, osteopathic doctors, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants. And I was the one of the few integrative people. So one, witnessing what the patient's experiences were and where their needs were not being met, it kind of started to draw out of me these little gems that I had learned earlier in my life and had kind of put on the back burner. Can you give an example of one? For example, something like craniosacral therapy. Okay, this is something that in my massage days I did a lot of. And craniosacral work is... It requires a lot of sensitivity to be able to touch and feel what's going on with the cerebral spinal fluid in the brain. That's how it works. In mainstream medicine, sensitivity is usually not our strong point, right? We're usually pretty good at saying, this is what's wrong and we're going to kind of shut it down. And so when I was working in the conventional environment, I sort of turned down that sensitivity And then one day working with someone who's seen everyone in San Francisco for their chronic migraines and they're not seeing any results with any of the medications or even dietary changes or supplements or treatments that I know about, I remember, oh, I have this other tool that I can work with here and let's try it. Let's see how it works. And as a general rule in medicine, as a licensed provider, There are two things I'm always thinking about, safety and efficacy, right? And so what's so important about having the conventional background training and experience is, is to know when someone's not in a safe situation and they need an MRI, they need a neurologist, and we don't have time to play with something like craniosacral therapy. And I don't mean to undermine therapy because it can actually be very effective, But to have the foundation to be able to say, I don't want to venture into this territory yet because I'm not sure if you're safe is important. With that said, once I became a more confident clinician in the foundations of medicine and knowing when someone is safe and when we can start to explore some of these other treatments that are not evidence-based, but anecdotally they help people and change quality of life, then I started to kind of reach into my tool bag and bring them back in. So you were actually seeing a patient, let's say, and 
the opportunity to use a less conventional modality emerges for you. How do you introduce that to the patient? What would you would you ask for permission? Say, I'm gonna do something that'd be a little weird, or like how did it come up the acknowledge buy-in of the patient? So I'm very transparent with the why. And I always kind of set them up and I I walk them through my thought process. I often just say to patients, now I'm going to think out loud for you for a little while. And then I want to get some feedback from you about my thoughts because we're making this decision together. And I'll kind of talk it through with them. You know, this is what's going on. This is where we've come from. These are some of the tools that I have that I could see working. And in most of the people, with most of the people I work with in our work together, we're going to use a variety of tools. The big question is, where do we want to start? And so sometimes I just want that feedback from them. When I present a few options to you, does something feel like, wow, I'm really interested in that? That really resonates with me. And from my perspective, if I don't have a really strong bias or belief that this is the thing that we need to start with, I'll honor their intuition on that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's interesting how you mentioned doctors are not rewarded for their sensitivity. But to do the work that you're doing requires greater and greater levels of sensitivity if you're going to bring in these different kinds of modalities into the practice. It suggests that you need to continue to do your own personal work as part of your development as a healer. How did that play out for you? It's essential. And my practice is an extension of me. It is. And it... Do you think of it almost as a spiritual practice in a way for yourself? I do. I do. How does that work for you? I very clearly attract in different clients or patients so they can mirror back to me things that I need to look at either in myself or things that I need to learn more about. Right? So when someone comes into my office that presents very similar to, you know, 10 other people I've seen recently. Sometimes I watch myself go right to this, I know what to do, you know, and it's almost a judgment. It's, I've seen this 10 times this week, this is the way it's going to go. And I'm constantly being reminded, that's not true. This person's an individual, they have their own path, they have their own process. And so much of medicine and healing as the practitioner, is the receptivity piece. And it's, it's constantly this balance of, yes, I have this, this a wealth of experience working with people and using different tools, and I can share with you how these things have worked 
for other people, but I also need to be receptive and open and listen to what... How do you do that? I can't imagine doing that. If I'm spending my whole day seeing one sick person after another, coming with their baggage through the door, as much as you want to love them and hold them and help them and all of that, man, at a certain point, don't you just get like, you know, gotta shut this down. I gotta pull back. It's like you're so available. Like, how do you hold yourself in that place of, of availability as a person who's constantly seeing others suffering and going through their stuff and, you know, maybe even throwing off some of the energy and anxiety of the illness in the room with you, you know, since you're there to receive it. And then you gotta like, well, uh, how do I handle that? How does that work for you? Yeah. And, you know, back to your original question, which is, what do it's really what do I do to take care of myself? And there are a number of things. Over the years, I've found the practices that really work for me. Yoga, for example, meditation, for example. And I continue to explore those in different ways. Last year, I did my first Vipassana. This, 10 days of silence. 10 days of silence. I'm currently doing a kundalini yoga teacher training. It's the fourth yoga teacher training I've done. So I'm constantly just looking for new ways to incorporate new tools into my my own work for so you my think own of it care. As, okay, you think of it as tools, right? That's interesting. Sorry to jump on you there. Because some people would say, oh man, you know, your fourth different modality in yoga teacher training, it's like, you know, spiritual tourism. You're kind of picking up all these different things. You're not sticking to the one that's going to get you deeper. You're kind of fluttering along the surface. You hear that. I disagree. It's a deepening of the practice. And I think it's more characterized by your relationship to what you're learning than how many teacher trainings you've done or how many retreats you've done or, you know, how many modalities are in your tool belt. We have this joke in my house that we need a room for all my certificates because I've done so many different trainings and I have all these certificates. But it's really not about the number of certificates. It's about each new training or perspective. It changes the way I look at all of it. So rather than these things being separate, they all impact each other. So exploring kundalini yoga, for example, when I come from more of a vinyasa or bhakti background, it's not like, oh, I'm going to abandon my bhakti or my vinyasa because now I do kundalini. But it's more of a, what do these things share? How do they impact each other? And how do they deepen my relationship with my own practice? How do I constantly keep it evolving with me so I can be of service to whatever is actually in front of me, knowing that that's dynamic and it's changing. And what you're seeing, I'm assuming, is that underneath these different different modalities, which each has its own specialties, which each has its own way of focusing on a particular aspect of human experience, that there's a lot of shared stuff, a lot of commonalities. 100%. And by tuning into those commonalities, and then also probably, here's my guess, you're seeing the same thing in the conventional medicine world, that there's certain aspects of healing that the conventional medicine world did actually stumble upon somehow or another 
that share something with these other modalities. Absolutely. But it's limited because it's not acknowledging these other aspects of the self beyond the physical. It might be helping the emotional side as a kind of byproduct, but not with the focused intention that you would bring to it. Yes, or even an Eastern approach, right? So there is there are commonalities everywhere, but I would say there there is a pretty big separation between the Eastern philosophy and the Western philosophy. And in terms of the healing practices? In terms of how we look at the body and processes in the body, and yes, healing practices. When you look to Ayurvedic medicine, Indian medicine, or you look to Chinese medicine, or you look to yoga, you see a lot of similar concepts. Uh, you know, even between things like Qigong and yoga or Tai Chi and yoga, all those coming from the East. When you look to the West, it's just, it's a very science evidence-based way of doing things. That doesn't mean that all of them aren't going to eventually merge. I believe they will. We're already starting to see how the West, Western research is making connections between mind and body and emotion and, and physical ailments. So it's, there are these common threads, but one big difference in the East the concept of energy is foundational. It's everywhere. This idea that there's a subtle body, there's more to you and I beyond our skin. And in Western medicine, we don't, we don't really have a lot of space for that. We say, I had a gut instinct, or we say, I walked into this party and I felt a weird vibe. But we don't really acknowledge that we're talking about something that's really a part of the human experience and a part of human health. We had a shaman on the other day, it's like Barry, who you know, studied with uh, shamans in the Amazon and in the Andes, became a healer. The energy stuff, it's the same as you have in the East. It's very similar when you actually get past the surface aspects of it. And there's a lot of tools that were developed by shamans that may not have survived into Eastern practices in the same way, because those are ancient kind of, you know, tribal, indigenous ways of, of working with energy. But, you know, there's a tremendous amount of overlap. Yeah, and you see that in botanical medicine as well. You see that showing up in areas of naturopathic medicine, which, which does try as much as possible to be science-based and evidence-based and use tools that fit in this Western perspective. But when you get into the world of herbal medicine or homeopathy, you're working with energetic qualities of substances. So you were saying that when you were coming up doing this work, there were no models, for, no role models for you. Are you finding now that there are other people who are going along a similar path, weaving these things together? Yes, and it's very exciting. And I see more and more cross-pollination of people who are kind of more specialists in their modalities or their areas, but are really open and interested in collaboration and learning from each other. Yes, what I see is it's almost like a polyglot thing that's going on, that no healer is really following the same path towards their own mix and match of modalities, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. And so different than the Western medicine way of training people, which is totally like 
you do the same training, you study the same books, you do the same kind of internships as every other doctor. It's like, it's extremely regimented, right? And then the other thing that's going on at the same moment in the same cities in America are these, you know, people who are exploring through their intuition which modalities to bring together, what's calling them, right? And they begin to find their own way through this, you know, process the way you have been describing for yourself. I find it fascinating, but also, frankly, a little confusing, right? Because I know when I go to a regular MD that that doctor has had a certain kind of training. Yeah. I know what the grounding of that. I, I assume that when the blood work comes in, that doctor knows how to read it. And when I enter into a kind of healing situation with a, you know, unconventional doctor in this way, I have no clue mm -hmm. what the background is or what that doctor person, healer person is capable of bringing in terms of expertise and experience. What do I do? I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a big challenge. You know, it's the big, it's the difference between licensed practitioners, which there are a lot of advantages to a, light, a system where people are licensed in what they do, and then unlicensed practitioners, which is the wild, wild west. You know, I struggle with this myself. I'm highly licensed. And which, by the way, gives me a lot of reassurance that when I talk to you, you know what you're talking about. And I do, you do, you know, I have like 10 years of clinical experience and I'm confident when I tell you that I think this is important or we have the freedom to explore these few different options. For me, knowing that people are safe with me is essential. So for me, taking some path where I picked up coaching or you know, just energy work, but, you know, without really having the foundation that you get in a licensed profession, that wouldn't have worked for me. That doesn't mean that I don't think there's place in the world for unlicensed professions. I think some of the greatest healers I've worked with, you know, it myself have been unlicensed in what they do, or you talk about the wisdom of shamans in the Amazon or you know, yogis in the East, these people don't go through licensure where you pay a licensing body to, you know, give you their seal of approval. But it is a challenging thing for the public to navigate. How do I know when someone is safe, when someone is effective, and when I can trust someone with my health or what areas of my health and well-being can I trust people with? Are healers who are pursuing the kind of approach that you're doing, uh, sharing information in some kind of public forum, is there a way that, the, that somebody who hears this in North Carolina or in West Virginia who's pursuing something similar uh, can connect into a network of others? and share experiences? Is there a conference annually? I actually have no idea. There are, but like you said, in this time when people are piecing together their own paths and journeys as practitioners and people are so unique, it's challenging. 
you know, there for me, there are aspects of what I do where I feel like I can go to conferences or seek out communities, but it's still very fragmented. You know, I can go to a conference or a gathering of conventional providers who do functional medicine. It's like a piece of what I do. And there are a lot of people doing that work for me to connect with. And functional I, medicine means exactly what, just for the sake of clarity? I, Functional medicine is an approach, and it's basically based on the idea that we want to prevent conditions before they start. So rather than simply looking at medicine as diagnosing and treating, we're looking at labs in a different way. How is the body functioning? How can we optimize function and prevent future illness as opposed to just dealing with this is this is the illness in front of us right now, and we're going to treat it. Because in my experience, there are functional medicine doctors who are interested in alternative modalities, even if they don't study them too deeply themselves. There's an openness mm-hmm. in the functional medicine world in terms of how these different lifestyle choices and practices. And, you know, listen, there's a lot of studies that show that meditation is just good for your health, for instance. So they're prescribing meditation effectively. But that's different than what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. In what way? Well, it's different in that I'm very grateful to functional medicine. I think it's opened up a whole world of medicine that really embraces and acknowledges life, the importance of lifestyle and prevention and health. I'm really interested in branching into these other compartments of health, right? The emotional, the mental, the spiritual. And I don't find communities or conferences that do a great job of really integrating all of those things. I've seen that you like to work with groups. What do you do with a group? So my work with groups has had kind of its own path. The origin story is that I was working at one medical group, big national primary care company, and anxiety was a huge and very common diagnosis that we didn't feel well-equipped to manage as a clinic. And so we brought groups of people together to take a skills-based approach to anxiety, bringing in things like breath work, mindfulness, loving-kindness practice, and then really using the community as a therapeutic tool. So one of the things that comes up when you're a provider working with people one-on-one all day is every person sitting in your office is suffering exponentially because they feel so alone. There's this illusion that everyone else is doing great. No one else is anxious. No one else has insomnia. No one else has fatigue. And here I am struggling. And feeling alone in that actually makes the weight of the condition that much worse. So the group is this powerful therapeutic tool where you discover that you're actually not alone. This is actually a collective cultural experience. We're all stressed. We're all anxious. We all suffer from insomnia sometimes. Most of us are fatigued in one way or another. And bringing the community together like that in itself is therapeutic. We also then gain the ability to learn from each other, right? And get out of this kind of power relationship where 
I am licensed provider and I have all the answers and you don't, as if you haven't been living in your body for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And when the group comes together, we get to kind of draw on the collective wisdom that's there. So that's really where my group work began. And But that sounds like talk therapy group work, basically, where you're talking with people about their stuff, they're sharing their experiences. How do you bring that to another level with the other practices that you are adept in? So what it's evolved a lot since beginning with groups in the clinical setting. A lot of my work has been inspired by many, many, many workshops and masters that I've studied with at the Esalen Institute. Big shout out to the Esalen Institute. I spent a lot of time there between 2011 and 2016, really, really honing my skills on how to facilitate a group. Currently, most of my group work takes place in retreats. And the retreats called Seven Senses are a seven-day journey where each day we use one of the chakras to theme the day. Then we use a variety of modalities to impact the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual planes. So we pull from yoga, breath work, sound meditation, and work with music. And then group work called constellations where Yeah, so a constellation is an opportunity to really use the group to uncover some, to use your language, trauma or wound, and with the help of others, set up a situation where we get to kind of heal that trauma or wound. So it's not role-playing. For example, if I had an experience with my father when I was young, that is still impacting me today, I'm not going to grab someone else from the group and have them necessarily play my father, but they could sit in and give me an opportunity to voice something that was never voiced. So we use the group as a container to help people through whatever process is coming up. And the fact that we're drawing from all these different modalities, everyone is impacted. Because some of us are able to access deep places of ourselves through physical practice, through asana. Some of us, that doesn't really do it, but the breath work really opens something else up. And some of us are all in our heads. And it's through the talking and the processing with each other or even witnessing someone else's share or vulnerability that opens something up in me. So somebody would come to a retreat like this with an issue that they want to address they articulate what it is that they want to pursue understand better release is that part of the process well i would use the word intention as opposed to an issue and so one of one thing that i feel very strongly about in health is it's a never-ending continuum and the word healing is a process that we should all be identifying with i think It's what we've done in our culture is we've started to associate the word healing with a problem that needs to be fixed or an illness that needs to be fixed. And that's not actually what healing is. Healing is the process of becoming whole. So we don't really have, you know, it's not as stigmatized when someone says, I want to up-level my business 
or I want to live bigger and live better, right? And these are terms we often hear in the coaching world. It's all healing to me, right? So on one end of the continuum, there could be an illness that we want to to heal and change, to feel better in our body. But then there's a whole other side of the continuum that's, I want to be myself in my relationship. I want to call in true love. I want to make my business impact more people. And this is all healing. So we invite people to come with an intention. I don't invite them always to see it as a problem. I, I invite them to see it as something that they want to work with in their lives. The challenge, I think, is that, especially in the States, is this: when you use the word healing, it suggests that, you know, because so many of us are, are, are raised to think, man, if I can chug along, I'm basically okay. Yeah, there's always the opportunity for an improvement, right? But I'm starting from a place where I am essentially independent, capable, successful on my own terms. If I can make those things happen, I am not in need of healing, right? You flip it to the way you're thinking about it, which I relate to. And there's this notion that, well, you know, you're born into the world with stuff to deal with. That's, I don't know if that's why you're here, but it's certainly, you know, like an interesting side effect of being here. (laughs) And that there's always another level of healing that's possible. Dalai Lama too, mm-hmm. right? That's just, you know, what it is to be a human. And then you start to get into what, it, what is it, but it's a language thing. Yeah, exactly. So I love how you were saying, you know, the coaches, successful coaches don't approach it through the word, the doorway of healing. They basically approach it through the doorway of up-leveling, <laughs> right? Right. And it's the same thing. It's just, it's a side of the continuum that we don't really look at in medicine and health. And what I'm saying is we can't look at health without looking at all of it. We can't fully heal the physical without addressing the mental, the emotional, the spiritual. It's all us. And that healing is not about somehow being incapacitated and needing to come back from a major injury. Right. Healing is about expanding your availability to your heart, ultimately. Mm, beautiful way of putting it. Well, you know, that's the hard work. It's the hard, it's much harder to get there than it is to heal a broken leg, but uh, way more rewarding. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's this growing recognition in the healthcare world that this more holistic approach is of value. Are you starting to see recognition in conventional medicine? interest in this kind of work coming from established MDs, hospitals, in this direction? I'd say yes, though I will also add that my career has been somewhat sheltered. I walked out of school very quickly into a job in a very innovative culture of medicine, and most of my work was with MDs that we're seeing firsthand how we were sharing patients and they were working with me and seeing big changes. So it was very easy to collaborate and impact each other and surround myself with a medical community that was open to this kind of more holistic orientation to health. 
In a broader sense, do I think that's that's happening? I do, though it's a big world out there. And I spend most of my time in, you know, metropolitan cities like San Francisco and New York, where people are kind of on the pulse of change. And I'm not really sure what's going on in the middle of the country. But generally, yes, I think it's changing. And I think people are more and more open to it. I see that you're a trained clairvoyant. What does it mean to be trained? Mm-hmm. Trained means I went through a program. And I spent about two years studying with a man who helped me open up to clairvoyance. Now, clairvoyance is a term that a lot of us kind of shy away from. I Psychic, clairvoyance, intuitive, all these terms mean really the same thing. And it's about being clear. It's To me, it's really very, very deep meditation. And what I learned in that training process was to quiet my mind so I can trust what I feel. Now, some people who identify as clairvoyance, you know, they close their eyes and they can see things. I've had that experience before, but more often than not for me, it's actually a clairsentient. I, I feel something, I get a hunch, and then that guides my direction of questioning or interaction with someone that I'm working with. So the way that clairvoyance shows up in my practice is not me sitting in front of someone, closing my eyes and telling them when they're going to meet their partner or have their first child, but it's more about really tapping into the, into the intuition to be able to help them see the way toward their goal. Uh, I happen to have had experience with a psychic healer who shall remain nameless for the moment, but I hope to have on as the guest at some point in the not too distant future, who is totally capable of reading the body, identifying an illness energetically, essentially then diagnosing it. And then the test will show it was accurate. Have you played with that? It doesn't show up quite that clearly for me. So what I play with is feeling. I have a lot of sensitivity in my hands. And I play with feeling where something is stuck, where something is blocked, where something is not right. And then I use my medical training and my knowledge and my head and the interaction with the patient or the client to try and tease out what that is. Sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's mental, sometimes it's physical. The physical stuff is the easy stuff because most of the time when a physical ailment is present, someone's very aware of it. They can feel it themselves. They don't really need me to be psychic to do that. They can say, yes, I feel something in my abdomen or you know, my digestion's off all the time. Where I tap in to the intuitive piece is trying to understand the relationship between their life choices, their emotional state, their thought patterns, and that physical experience. So can you see for yourself at some point, not too far from now, being part of a larger clinic of practitioners who are working in a similar way or bringing these things together? in a kind of, you know, constructive, collaborative environment? 
where this other approach to hell, you know, becomes kind of, it, it has a locus, has a place where that work can take place? I really hope so. Uh, it, it's my vision, and it's a vision for it to actually not happen in the city, but for it to happen in nature where we can also be connected to the rhythms of the land and also include the environment as a therapeutic tool. It's a big piece of health and healing is how we interact with the environment. But yes, that's a dream. Erica, where can people find you? They can find me in my private practice, which is at the Assemblage, John Street, and in via my in New York, in the financial district. And they can find me internationally at retreat, leading retreats, which are always listed on my website, www.experience7senses.com. Great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I want to thank Erica Matlock for being a guest on the show, and thank you, too, for joining us. You can find out more about Erica at her website, experience7senses.com. It's spelled out. Seven is spelled out. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album, The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience. Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia and here for a moment on the album Gone Gone Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.